Hey there, welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. One of all of our hard and unavoidable challenges is how to joyfully move on from being rejected or judged. And no wonder it's so hard. Researchers tell us that it's hardwired into our DNA that all rejection, however clearly unjustified, negatively affects our self-esteem. So what can we do when we feel those emotions? After a story or two, we will start off by hearing about the research in question from a Duke psychologist named Mark Leary. Then we'll think about how a mindful approach can help us find courage and do our duty to ourselves and take others with us on our journey. Before we get started, though, let me encourage you to check out our parent website at journey-on.net, where you can discover interesting materials like five-minute videos to teach you the basics that we talk about here, along with offering you a look at live online small groups that people from all over are enjoying as they connect with new friends who want to grow in the spirituality we talk about here, and those groups might be right for you. Again, that's all at journey-on.net. Okay, let's get rolling with Rejected? Don't Sweat It. I recently found myself thinking back to a strange part of my high school experience. There were several very different populations thrown together in my high school, all of which I got along great with, apart from one quirk. These groups tended to band together, and when someone had a dispute, the groups might end up fighting each other. And for some obscure reason... I ended up getting dragged in fairly frequently, largely as a peacemaker, but sometimes I would end up in the middle of some brawl. Again, quirky, and I want to be quick to say, not a really big part of my adult persona. But in those days, my role got a target put on my back. At one point, someone I didn't know tried to drown me after swimming practice, for instance. And as I would walk down the halls of my school, it wasn't uncommon for someone from one of those factions, not infrequently someone I otherwise had a good relationship with, to like shriek insults at me. Now, of course, any adult would counsel the young me to let those roll off my back. I understood what was happening, and I understood that the insults weren't really about me. But at the time, it wore me down. And right about then, I tried to get a summer job in a down market for unskilled labor. And I remember after what I think was the 80th rejection, feeling worn down by that experience. And then I finally did get a job at a pizza parlor, which turned out to have the worst employee morale I've ever run across. The manager was stressed and, in my memory, always angry and unhappy which led the teenage employees largely to be stressed and unhappy themselves. I remember a low-point experience in that challenging setting. Customers, I'm sure picking up on the horrible vibe of the place, were also largely abusive and unhappy. And one day when I was working the register, one very unhappy woman complained that her order was so late. Now, it had only been about 15 minutes since she'd ordered, which was a normal time frame, but she told me what an incompetent buffoon I was. I told her I would check on her order, only to discover that we had in fact lost her order. And so it would be even rushed another 15 minutes, and I got to be the one to tell her. I bring this up to talk about that key life skill of moving on from rejection or disapproval. When I brought this up in our weekly groups, I realized I'd hit a gusher. There were so many stories. And I found my mind drifting, I'm sure from my pastoring days, to a bunch of themes from the Bible along those lines and kicking those around a bit. Sometimes I like doing that. But this time I found particular encouragement in seeing them from a mindfulness perspective around these themes. Now, we all get rejected and disapproved of every now and again, of course, from angry fellow drivers on the freeway to much more consequential interactions. So let's think together about a battle plan. So the research. A couple of podcasts back, I talked about acute versus chronic stress and had a few thoughts about why Jesus brought that up and how that tied into spiritual growth. My science in that podcast, I learned from an online course called Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by a Duke psychology professor named Mark Leary. 
The course explores other interesting questions like, are there scientifically provable emotional differences between men and women? And if so, what might we make of that? Why do people laugh? Stuff like that. But the one I thought about perhaps the most is an exploration about whether we need self-esteem and what it really is and how it functions. In brief, Professor Leary starts by looking at all the studies that suggest that self-esteem, on the one hand, is crucial to basically any human good outcome, from academic success to career success to good relationships to staying away from addictions to teens not getting involved in the wrong crowd. So yes, obviously, he says self-esteem is important. But he points out it's how it's important, that, that, that how it's important is actually inverse to what the science tells us. So for instance, students don't get good grades because they have high self-esteem. Students who get good grades develop high self-esteem. People don't develop drug addictions because they have low self-esteem. People who have drug addictions develop low self-esteem. The cause and effect is messed up, or so Professor Leary says the data tells us. Self-esteem, he teaches us, is like a gas gauge on our car, one that in this case lets us know how our social acceptance is going. So addictions do lower self-esteem because they cause behaviors that drive people away. Um, Professor Leary talked about how large governments, the state of California, for instance, in the 1980s, have developed expensive initiatives to raise self-esteem in children, which led to famous things like participation ribbons in sports rather than declaring winners and losers, among other things. But he says the outcomes have been poor from those initiatives. They succeeded in self-reported measures of self-esteem, but they did so as rates of depression and addiction and so on went up in the group study. Instead of rejiggering the gas gauge when it's on empty, the key, we're told, is to fill the tank with gas. Professor Leary says that when our internal self-esteem doesn't match up with the social results of our actions, a common response is to find groups with lower barriers to acceptance who will accept us, notably like gangs or cults which often encourage participants to do antisocial things, to start a fight or to cut off family members. Those are often the conditions of entry. Anyway, all this got me thinking on the spiritual side of things, that the kind of spiritual growth we talk about here itself could trigger disapproval or rejection. And again, Professor Leary says it's um, that people who say, oh, I don't feel rejection from people, I don't care what other people think, they're lying. That it's in our DNA that if we're rejected, our self-esteem drops. It just has to happen. So spiritual growth can do that too, right? Um, some of the pictures of spiritual development we've looked at recently describe how continuing our growth may well require leaving many of our peers behind us as we leave these group stages into something more challenging and in the end, for us at least, rewarding. And Jesus brings that up, right? When he says things like Matthew 10, 37, anyone who puts father or mother ahead of me isn't worthy of me. Jesus mentions this because his own family thought he had lost his mind with the spiritual growth he was moving into. So they were rejecting him. Mindfulness seems helpful in all of this stuff. So mindfulness, you'll remember, involves noticing our thoughts and emotions as things that are separate from us. So rather on these terms than just feeling rejected and then trying to push that bad feeling aside or talk ourselves out of it, as I did in my high school days, this therapeutic model we looked at a while back called ACT would call doing that flipping on the struggle switch. A mindful approach, by contrast, would just have you with kindness, notice that you're feeling rejected, and then letting it be as you go on with your day, not flipping on the struggle switch to try to feel better or to distract yourself so you don't have to feel whatever you're feeling. One model I've liked would, if this were happening to me, involve me saying something like, oh, hey there, welcome, feeling rejected. 
The advantage of this is that when just left alone and not engaged, the feelings then are free to pass as you move on to whatever is next in your day. You aren't taking them like into your flesh. It's like, oh, everyone thinks I'm bad. Now I feel rejected. My self-esteem is lowering. They're wrong. That's unfair of them. And then engaging, it kind of becomes this grim thing we have to push through, which is certainly true for me in those high school experiences. The mindfulness thing is you don't do any of that engaging. You don't flip on the struggle switch. Now, a common question about this is whether mindfulness itself, at least in my circles, is a particularly Christian or even spiritual exercise, or whether it might best be understood as a wise, neutral, therapeutic practice, but that's at best. Now, it certainly is a wise, neutral, therapeutic practice, but in my case, God is absolutely a part of it. So when I notice, name, and welcome whatever's happening for me, I do it in a world richly lived in by God. In that sense, this sort of mindfulness has felt like a great step forward in my life with God. A few things from the Bible come to mind that might offer some nice possibilities from this mindfulness perspective when we feel rejected. So one encouragement we get when this happens is that we might mindfully enjoy newfound courage, enjoy newfound courage. Jesus and other biggie Bible people commonly point us towards a kind of courage as we move through life as if that's a key thing, as if we need to embrace that people will sometimes disapprove of us as we move forward into God's work in our lives, and courage is going to be our way through. So advocating for the courage strategy, we get scriptures like Psalm 27. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. I've got courage. Or Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Don't fear or be in dread of people, for it's the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Even though scriptures, they make me, as I read them, I find myself resolute. So how does mindfulness help us do that? I think it really does help. So a few years back, some friends loudly broke with me for differences in our religious opinions. Just telling myself rightly, I think, this isn't about me, it's about them, didn't help how I felt. But mindfully noticing those feelings when they came without trying in any way to change them or talk myself out of them did help in ways I'll I'll elaborate on in a minute. I found I could let them pass without at all wearing me down as those youthful rejections did. And that made courage moving forward much easier. It's like, oh, I let them go, and now I can just move forward. I can be strong and courageous. So here's another way to look at this, using terms we've been talking about in recent podcasts. Enjoy noticing your desolations. Enjoy noticing your desolations. And that might sound kind of counterintuitive. How do we enjoy things that desolate us? So, okay, I've been talking, I'm sure, all too much in recent podcasts about this Jesuit spiritual practice called the Examine. The examine involves, before God, noticing what brings you life, which they call your consolation, maybe in the last 24 hours, say, or whatever your day is. But what I've talked less about is the value of part two of the examine, which is before God, noticing what's taken life away from you in that same period of time called your desolation. And it's natural that we'd feel like, why would I want to notice something that takes away life from me? I want to think about the positive. That's what I want to do. Here's why. Here's why it's so helpful. So as I've just described, let's say you feel disapproval from someone. Well, as you do the exam, you think, oh, I know what my desolation is. It's when that person disapproved of me or judged me. That felt desolating. Well, the thing about desolations is they're normal. It's okay to have desolations. You have them every day. This is just the one now. Noticing that on those terms removes the disapproval as being something you can have to carry deep within you, as I did in my high school days when it's like I got all this rejection and I just kind of had to soldier through, trudge on through it. If it's just think, oh, my desolation today is when that guy in high school, I could have said when that guy from the stairs, you know, called me a name because he wanted to shame me because I was on some other, you know, I was trying to be a peacemaker and he didn't want me to be or whatever. I, 
I could just name it as the desolation, not interact with it, not try to justify why he was wrong or I, I was very justified in what I did or doggone it, what a jerk he is or anything. I just noticed it. That's my desolation day. And I let it go. It becomes something you just take a look at and offer to God and it wafts away. Enjoy noticing your desolations. Who knew how helpful that could be? Next, enjoy doing your duty to yourself. This has a long heritage. I'm going to talk about this guy named Meister Eckhart who talks about this some. But rather than targeting desolations, on the examine terms, this does target consolations, the things that bring you life. Whatever is leading to someone's disapproval of you might come because you've made a choice to do something that does seem best before God for you. It's your duty to yourself, so you're doing it. And that might run you afoul of someone who then judges you. The 14th century theologian and mystic Meister Eckhart again told us that before God, doing our duty to ourselves is a key part of spiritual practice and godliness. People sometimes try to shame us because, again, what's right for us feels threatening to them. They want us to abandon that thing because they want to feel comfortable again. Eckhart would say that we have a sacred duty to ourselves as God speaks to us, and he would offer an unexpected take on some key scriptures from this perspective, so like Galatians 6, and let us not grow weary of doing good, and I'll add in, doing good to what is God's right move for you, doing that good. For in due season, if we don't grow weary of doing good for what God says is right for us, we're going to reap if we do not give up. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due seasons we will reap if we don't give up. That would be an interesting take on that scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to all people. And the temptation in this view would be to abandon your duty to yourself, to devalue that what you owe to yourself means anything. No temptation along those lines is overtaking that is not common to all people. God is faithful, the scripture continues, and God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he's also going to provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it and then continue on doing your duty to yourself, not abandoning it. Now, another way of phrasing that, I suppose, on a hero's journey note, which we looked at in the last podcast, would be enjoy noticing your bliss, hero's journey term, your bliss. The Bible's full of that. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he's going to give you the desires of your heart, as if the desires of your heart matter. Proverbs 4, keep your heart with all vigilance. Like we have to guard it or we're going to lose ourselves. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Or Romans 12, God's will for you is good and pleasing and perfect. You're going to like it. So keep an eye on your bliss. It matters. Keep your heart with all vigilance. It's an important thing to do. And it might cause rejection, but with mindfulness, there's all sorts of ways to let that pass and move forward into what God wants for your life. And then finally, I suppose one bit of advice the Bible would give in this journey past, you know, rejection, because I don't know who we are is cross somebody else, is that we can take anyone with us who will come. Take anyone with you who will come. When we're constantly jamming on the struggle switch when we feel rejected, it, of course, wears on us. It makes our days more of a slog than we wish they were. It turns out it also makes it very hard to joyfully see other people who are around us. It gets us self-focused. Why do I have to trudge through all this judgment and rejection when I'm just doing what seems to me to be the right thing? Why, oh, why? We don't notice there might be other people who are in similar situations than us who would enjoy taking the journey with us. Instead, we're just trying to get through the day. But this God-imbued mindfulness approach Let's us take a breath, look around us for a minute, only to discover there are delightful companions very much near us. So I mentioned that a few years back, some friends rejected me because of religious differences of opinion. But other friends kind of out of the woodwork rallied alongside in that new journey. I, I wasn't alone. Take anyone with you who will come. 
In John 21, Peter asks Jesus, what about him, Lord, referring to John? And Jesus replies, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. Don't look to the other people. I'll bring you people. So when you notice emotions about feeling rejected or judged, to recap, you might mindfully enjoy newfound courage, enjoy noticing your desolations, enjoy doing your duty to yourself, which involves noticing your consolations, enjoy noticing your bliss in that sense, and take anyone with you who will come. My high school initiation into escalating experiences of rejection turned out to be revealing. As much as I knew at the time that none of these experiences had anything to do with me, the factional rivalries were there whether I was there or not. The job market for unskilled labor was extraordinarily tight at that time. The pizza place had terrible morale before I showed up. I still found myself flipping the struggle switch all the time with each new provocation, which made so many days in that era feel grim, and again, for no reason, because none of the things that made me feel rejected were personal to me, but it did. But Jesus' invitation to this kind of God-infused mindfulness that could engender a new kind of courage and awareness and trust in the things that are giving you life, that can open your eyes in a new way, that we're by no means alone, that there are delightful companions on our journey, however we may feel rejected by someone else, boy, all that seems like a powerful thing indeed. Hey, it's been great being with you. See you soon.